Bible, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Beginning with chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle argues that all men are sinners. He does that quite effectively and concludes that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now in the last part of chapter 3, beginning with verse 21 and into chapter 4, he deals with how sinners can be saved. This salvation is described here by the phrase justification by faith. It might be good for us to define once again what justification is. Someone has said that justification or to be justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's okay for where it goes, but it doesn't quite go far enough because, you see, that brings me back to the point of innocence. But justification does something more than that. Justification is the judicial act of God whereby he declares righteous in his sight the one who puts his faith in Christ. So it's not just being innocent or being as though I'd never sinned, but it means to be righteous in the sight of God. That's what a justified person is. And justification comes by faith. We have emphasized that now for a couple of weeks as we have concluded chapter 3 in our teaching. I'd like to call it this morning uh, faith righteousness as opposed to works righteousness because it is a righteousness that comes to us as a gift from God by faith. Therefore, it is faith righteousness. Faith righteousness is not a Paul-created doctrine, nor is it even new with the New Testament. As a matter of fact, people were saved throughout the Old Testament on the same basis as you and I are saved, by faith, through God's grace. They may have believed a different promise or some other aspect of God's revelation than we've been given, but nonetheless, it was their faith in that promise or revelation that saved them. This is true of Abraham, who is the example before us today. The story is told of the experience of Dr. Harry Ironside, who was for 18 years the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He's been with the Lord now over 30 years. Dr. Ironside was on vacation one summer and visited a church and went to Sunday school. How would you like to be the Sunday school teacher where Dr. Ironside or someone like that would come and sit in your teaching? Well, the teacher didn't know who he was. And uh, in the course of the lesson, the teacher asked the question, how were people saved in Old Testament times? And after a little pause, one of the students lifted his hand, one of the men in the class, and he said, by keeping the law. And the teacher said, that's right. But another hand went up, and it was Dr. Ironside's hand. He said, you know, my Bible says that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Well, the teacher was a little embarrassed by that, and so he said, well, uh, does somebody else have an idea? And the student, uh, another student, lifted his hand, and this one said, well, they were saved by bringing sacrifices to God. Yes, that's right, said the teacher, and he tried to go on with the lesson, but there was another hand that went up, and it was Dr. Ironside's hand again, and he said, my Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Well, the teacher, who was unprepared, 
was frustrated by this time and finally realized that there was someone there who knew more than he did. And so finally he said, well, then you tell us how people were saved in the Old Testament. And so Dr. Ironside wanted to explain that people were saved in the Old Testament just like they're saved today by faith. By faith. Abraham illustrates that to us, folks. You have to remember that the apostle is writing here, particularly with the Jews in mind. And so he brings Abraham before them. And one could not bring him a more important and revered figure before a Jew for consideration. Let's read what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And in Psalm 32, he quotes these words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? That is, upon the Jew or upon the Gentile also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, while he which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. It doesn't say there's no sin, but it says there's no violation, there's no transgression where there's no law. He says, for this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The apostle brings Abraham to our attention in this chapter to illustrate that justification is by faith. In the text that we read this morning, he's going to explain to us what did not justify Abraham. And then next week we'll see what did justify Abraham. 
What did not justify Abraham? Well, the answer is threefold. Works, circumcision, and the law. Abraham was justified apart from all three of these. The apostle explains that very logically. Verses 1 through 8, he talks about the fact that Abraham was justified apart from works. Now, the teaching of Judaism in Paul's day was that justification came by works. In uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, Everett Harrison has a helpful paragraph. He says, To show that Abraham's close relation to God was not based on works, a simple appeal to Scripture is sufficient. That appeal was the more necessary because Judaism, even before Paul's day, was laying great store by Abraham's piety and was grounding it in his obedience. And then he quotes from the book of 1 Maccabees, which was written, as many of you know, in that intertestamental period before the New Testament time. And this is what the statement says from 1 Maccabees. Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness? You see, that was the feeling, that was the teaching of the rabbis in that day. That Abraham was found faithful, he passed the test, he did not yield in temptation, and therefore his works caused him to be justified in the sight of God. And so it is significant that the apostle passes over all of that information, which he knew, because he was a trained rabbi. His teacher was one of the most brilliant, gifted men of that day, Gamaliel. He knew what the Jewish rabbis taught. He passed over all of that, and he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 to show that, in fact, Abraham was not saved by his faithfulness. Rather, he was justified by his faith. Justified by faith. The apostle points out that if, in fact, he had been justified by his works, there would be two results. In verse 2, he says that there would be room for boasting. Abraham, or for that matter, any of us who would do good enough to get to heaven could boast about what we had done. And last week we saw that God will have no flesh, what? Glory in his presence. Therefore, he removes any basis for boasting on our part by removing works as the means of salvation. A second result, if a person could be justified by works, is found in verse 4. Salvation would come to us on God's part as an obligation. God would be obliged to give us salvation, and it would no more at all be of grace or be a favor. God would be simply giving us what is our desert, what is our due. And God will not save any man on that basis. And so he points out that Abraham was not saved by works, but rather he was saved by faith. And so that we can understand the context of this promise that Abraham believed, take your Bible, go back to the first book, the book of Genesis, and look in chapter 15. In verse 1 of the chapter, we see these words. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is before his name change. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, 
What wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. What he's really saying there in verses 2 and 3 is that because he was childless, according to the law of that day, he had already arranged with his Eliezer of Damascus to be his heir and to care for all of his things when he died. That was so that there could be a distribution of the goods of the deceased. Uh, Eliezer was, in, the, in essence, the administrator of the estate of Abram. And uh, he's an old man at this time, some 86 years of age, and so he's got everything all arranged. And God says, um, I've got a great promise for you. Great things are going to happen, Abraham. And Abraham said, wait a minute, Lord. I'm 86 years of age. I don't have any children. How can you say great things are going to happen? Well, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. What a tremendous promise that was and what a miracle it would take because Abraham was beyond childbearing years, as was his wife Sarai. But God says, from your own body there's going to come a son. And then God took him by the hand and took him outside the tent and said, Now Abraham, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And so God not only said, Abraham, you're going to have an heir, but you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars up in the heavens. That was God's promise, his revelation to Abraham. And then it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. And so you see, that was the promise that Abram believed. Abram didn't call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. This is 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was born. Abram believed the promise that God gave to him, the specific revelation that he would have a son and that his descendants would be like the stars of the heavens. Now Abraham did look through a telescope, as it were, down through the centuries, and he saw the day of the Christ and he rejoiced in it. But at this point, he simply is believing what God told him. God honored that faith and counted it to him for righteousness. There was nothing in Abram himself that caused God to say, Boy, there's a nice guy. He needs a white hat. He's doing okay. I'm going to give him salvation. He wasn't a good old boy. Abraham was called by God out of idolatry. He was an idol worshiper just as his forefathers, according to Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. So there was nothing in Abraham that caused God to say, there's somebody special, I'm going to save him. God in his sovereign grace simply looked down and there was Abraham and God chose him and called him out. Abraham responded by faith. And when God gave him the promise... Abraham believed in the Lord in a saving sense, and God saved him at that moment. Or as it puts it here, he counted it to him for righteousness. 
Actually, when it says Abraham believed God here in Genesis 6, excuse me, 15, verse 6, it literally means in the Hebrew, Abraham amened God. Now, I know amen is lost in our vocabulary today. We hardly ever use it. That's sad. But Abraham was not afraid to say amen in church. There was just a small crowd, him and God. But when God gave him the promise, he shouted, Amen! He believed it. He said, that's mine. I claim it for myself. I agree with that. And God said, your faith is counted as righteousness. And now I'll go back to Romans chapter 4. That's where the apostle gets this quotation in verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And you notice the word reckoned. Eleven times in this chapter, this same Greek word is used, but in the English translations, it's <clears throat> brought across variously as reckoned or imputed or counted. But it all means the same thing. It's a word that goes back to the accounting world. Some of you here are accountants. So you can identify very readily with this word. It simply means to credit to an account. You go down to the bank with your paycheck. You endorse the check, fill out the deposit slip, you hand it to the girl. She takes it, she punches the numbers in the computer. And what is she doing? She is imputing that amount of money to your account. She is reckoning it to you. She is crediting it to you personally. And so what it really is saying here is that God looked at the account of righteousness in Abraham's case and it was bankrupt. There was nothing there that God could look at to give Abraham credit. He was absolutely without credit. He was bankrupt. It was empty. So God gave Abram a promise. Abram believed it. And God said, now... I'm going to give that account righteousness, and he put into his account perfect righteousness in his sight. That's what the word means. Kenneth Weiss says, Thus God put to Abram's account, placed on deposit for him, or credited to him, righteousness. That's what it means. You see, that's what happens when every person trusts God's promise and calls upon Christ for salvation today. At that instant, the bankrupt account is filled up with perfect righteousness. God reckons the righteousness of Christ to the believer. And there are some people who think that they are beyond that point. I've talked to people who've said, you know, I've, that's great for good people, but I'm a sinner. I've done terrible things. And when they say that, they've missed the whole point. God doesn't justify the good people. Now, that's what religion teaches. That's what liberal theology likes to promote. That if you're good enough, God will justify you. He'll pass you by, say, okay, slap you on the back, let you come on in. But that's foreign to the word of God. In fact, according to verse 5, who is it that God justifies? Is it the good? What's the word? The ungodly. In other words, friend, if you feel today that you're unworthy of salvation, that you have no righteousness, you are a prime candidate for God's salvation. If you recognize that you are ungodly or without God, God can justify you. It's possible to be too good to be saved, but it's not possible to be too bad to be saved. 
I don't care how deeply you may feel that you've failed and you've sinned and you're, you're exed out before God, I want to tell you you're not. God justifies the ungodly, and he may do that because, you see, Jesus Christ has paid for your sins in full at the cross. All of the demands of the law upon the sinner, Jesus took in himself. He paid the price in full, and he said as he died, it is finished. Literally, the price is paid. So that now a person who will may trust the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his sin is imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is given to him and he's saved. And that's how God receives us. Have you trusted Jesus Christ that way? That's what happened to Abraham. He hadn't read Romans 4 yet. (laughs) But uh, that's what happened to Abraham. He just didn't know all of this at that point. Now, this doctrine that we're talking about is affirmed by David. That's interesting. David writes in a different dispensation, a different age. He writes under the law. David uh, wrote as a a Christian, uh, as a believer. Not as a Christian, as a believer. And he undergirds what the apostle's been saying in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, he doesn't use the word righteousness or justify, but he does use that word take into account or reckon here, and that's why Paul uses this quotation. David is saying the same thing. Now, the interesting thing is that David is saying this in Psalm 32 after he sinned as a Christian. You know, there are those poor Christians who live the Christian life, they live throughout their lives under the fear of losing their salvation, for fear that they're going to do something wrong and lose out in the end. I pity them. As a matter of fact, Dr. Harry Ironside, whom I quoted earlier, was of that persuasion earlier in his years, and God got him straightened out, and he wrote a book about it. I think it's been republished recently, in fact. As he came to understand that justification by faith is an eternal proposition. It takes place once and forever. You see, David says essentially the same thing that Paul is saying, but he said it after a terrible sin as a believer. So the implication is that his terrible sin of adultery with Bathsheba, that terrible sin did not interrupt his justification. Even though he had grievously sinned, even though God was greatly displeased, He was still a child of God. And he says, Blessed is the man who sinned the Lord will not hold against him. Essentially is what he's saying. Do you understand that once you are saved, there is no sin that you can ever commit that God will ever hold against you? Do you understand that? According to Colossians chapter 2, all of your sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. Blessed truth, wonderful doctrine justification by faith. We are not justified by works and we can't lose our salvation by works. We are justified by faith through grace and we are saved by grace. It's either all of works or it's all of grace, one or the other. We can't mix the two. And the blessed truth of the word is that we are justified by faith. And it's of God's grace. Secondly, we notice verses 9 through 12 that 
Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. Now it's difficult for us to understand the import of that. Because today circumcision is a matter of hygiene, according to most of the medical uh, profession. I started to say perfection, that's what some doctors would like me to say, but it's profession. And uh, in that day, it was something far deeper. God may have given it secondarily for hygiene among his people, but he gave it primarily as a sign of the covenant that he established with them. That's what circumcision was all about. Now, the Jews boasted in it. To them, circumcision was just about everything. Now, they had a right to boast at first because it was the symbol that they belonged to God. They had trusted the Lord. They were following him, and this was a physical sign of it. But as the centuries transpired, the emphasis was put less and less upon the faith and more and more upon the ritual. Until in the day when Paul is writing these words, the Jews had forgotten about personal faith in the Lord, and their whole emphasis was upon the ritual of circumcision. On the eighth day of a boy's life, he was circumcised. And to them, that brought him into the the covenant relationship with God. No emphasis on personal faith. It was just a ritual, a rite that they went through. Now, the Jews boasted so much in this that they looked upon everybody else who was uncircumcised as being unworthy of being related to God. And so the apostle writes to these Jewish Christians who still had some of this thinking, and he says, I want to ask you something. When Abraham was justified, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? And horror of horrors to the Jews. He was justified 14 years before he was circumcised. In other words, he was still a Gentile when he was justified by faith. Now, you may not understand or appreciate the impact of that, but a Jew would. That was a tremendous blow to his pride, to his boasting, to understand that Abraham had been justified before he was circumcised. Now, why was it that God ordered it that way? It was so that Abraham could be the father of the faith, quote-unquote, to both Jews and Gentiles, to all who believe. So that today, whether one is a Jew of the circumcision or a Gentile of the so-called uncircumcision, one is related to God and is a part of Abraham's descendants by faith. His family is the family of faith. Now I'd like to make an application here because there is a parallel today to what circumcision was to the Jews. It's baptism. There's baptism. Now, the parallel is not entirely wrong. You see, circumcision was to the Jews an outward sign of their inward faith in God. Now, isn't that what baptism is? Yes, it is. Baptism is an outward evidence of the fact that one has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision did not add to the Jews' salvation. Baptism does not add to the Christian salvation. We're justified by faith. But baptism is right. It is ordered for us just as circumcision was ordered for the Jews under the law. The Lord commands that those of us who trust Christ then follow him by baptism. Now I'll take it a point further. I believe that this is at least part of the origin of infant baptism. 
the parallel was drawn too closely. So the people figured, well, if there's a parallel here then, and Jewish boys were circumcised the eighth day, according to the law, then we should have our babies sprinkled as infants to bring them into the covenant. Well, I see nothing wrong with presenting a baby in dedication to God, but infant baptism finds no place in the scripture. Now, I would like right now to quote for you every scripture that teaches infant baptism. I want you to get a pencil and paper handy. I want you to write down the references because I'm going to give you each one of them right now. You ready? How'd you like that? Did you get them all? Did you write them down? Got the point? It's not found in the scriptures. It's not there at all. So while there is a parallel with circumcision, we must not draw that parallel too closely. Circumcision was the sign that one was related to God through the covenant of the law. Baptism is a sign that one is related by personal faith to God through the new covenant based upon Christ's shed blood. Baptism is important, but it doesn't make one saved. If today you're trusting in baptism or some other ritual to get you to heaven, dear friend, may I warn you that that trust of yours, however sincere it may be, is wrongly placed. God doesn't take anybody to heaven because he's been baptized. Now, I was baptized as an infant. I was sprinkled as an infant, to be more correct. And it did something for me. It got my forehead wet. But that's all it did. And I don't mean to make light of something that is very meaningful to some people, but I would like to say this. It is not meaningful to God. It means nothing to God. What does? Personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's something else I want to say. And that is that there is still today a circumcision. It is an inward circumcision. The apostle says in Colossians chapter 2 that it is a circumcision without hands. In other words, it's not a physical circumcision. He calls it the cutting away of the old man from us. When you and I were saved... The moment we trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit did a circumcision in our hearts and he cut away from us the old man. And that's why he goes on to say, now you're to put away the deeds of that old man. You're no longer that old man. So don't don't lie. Don't get angry. Don't be involved in adultery, in immorality, in impurity. Because those are a part of the old man, and he was cut away from you when you were saved. Rather, he says, walk as the new man, and add to yourself humility and uh, love and so on. Colossians chapter 3. That's what that's all about. So today there is a circumcision. It's inside, it's inward, it happens the moment we're saved. But we are not justified by our works. Whether it be physical circumcision or baptism, These things do not justify one. Finally, and briefly, Abraham was not justified either by the law. Now that's very easy to understand if you simply know the chronology of the Old Testament. Abraham lived about 600 years before the law was even given. So there's no way he could have been justified by the law. 
In fact, you will find three times in verses 13 through 17 the word promise. And that's why we call the period of time from Abraham up until Moses the age of promise. God dealt with his people on the basis of his promise to Abraham, which was carried on to Isaac and to Jacob and to his descendants. And then beginning with the Jews as they came out of Egypt and Mount Sinai, God dealt with them on the basis of the law. But that period of time between Abraham and up to Mount Sinai is usually called the age of promise. You see, promise is something that comes by grace. It's not deserved. It's by favor. And that's how God dealt with Abraham. And that's how God deals with us, too. God doesn't save us on the basis of the good things we do or our obedience to the Ten Commandments. He saves us because we believe his promise. And again, the apostle emphasizes the fact that God justifies the ungodly, not because they keep the law, but because they trust his promise. And all of us today who have made that decision to trust Jesus Christ are part of Abraham's descendants. And you notice that he says in verse 17, and here he quotes from Genesis 17, verse 5. He says, A father of many nations have I made you, to Abraham. Now that's true in a physical sense, isn't it? Today, not only the Jews are descendants of Abraham, but who else? The Arabs. They are descendants of Abraham through Ishmael, his son by Hagar, the bondmaid to his wife Sarah. So he has many nations in the world today, and his, his, his kids are still squabbling, aren't they? Some of us know what that's like in raising kids. So it's true physically, but you see it's true spiritually too that he is the father of many nations because from many nations of the world there are those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ and who are part of the family of God. So that in that spiritual sense he is the father of many nations as well. You see it's faith that counts with God. Not not works, not ritual, not keeping the law, but it's faith and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't look for self-righteousness. He looks for faith righteousness. Righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Is that the righteousness you have today? Is that how you're intending to get to heaven? By faith in Christ? Or are you still planning to get there some other way? If that be the case, then before God I must tell you to be a faithful servant of His that if you're trying to get there another way, you'll never make it. There are many ways that seem right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, according to Proverbs. The only way to get to heaven is God's way, by his provision in his Son. If you've not trusted Christ, I hope you will before you leave here. And then in closing, to those of us who've done that, who are Christians, You know, God has performed a marvelous operation in us, an inward circumcision. Does your life witness to that? Does your lifestyle reflect the fact that God has cut away the old man from you? Or are you still putting on the deeds of the old man and living like a sinner? Now, we never get to the point in this world, we believe, of sinless perfection, but we ought to be growing more and more in holiness. 
there ought to be more and more purity in our lives, more and more love, more and more humility, more and more Christ-likeness. Is that where you are today in your Christian walk? Oh, I'm not saying are you perfect. I'm saying are you growing to be like Jesus Christ? Or are you slipping back the other direction? If so, then today may I exhort you as a brother in Christ to put off the old man with his deeds and to put on the new man which is created in Christ Jesus after righteousness and true holiness. Let's pray.